Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello there, podcast family, and welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. Uh, We're delighted to be joined for the second time by Dr. Deepak Ravindram. He's here to discuss the after effects of coronavirus, also known as long COVID, also known as post-COVID syndrome. We are going to chat about why this happens, what the likely causes are, what current treatments are being used, and of course, what you can do to make yourself feel better. Deepak is a consultant in pain medicine and the clinical lead for the Berkshire Long Covid service at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading. He's also soon to be a published author. Deepak's new book, The Pain-Free Mindset, which we do discuss in the latter half of the show, is set to be released on the 4th of March this year. That's 2021. It's going to be an essential resource for anyone suffering from and treating patients with chronic pain. If this is you, this is the book for you. If you're interested in reading it, you can find a link below in the show notes directly to it. Now, as a reminder, if you are enjoying these shows or if you know someone who needs to hear this information, whether it's a friend, family, uh, uh, someone that you know with back pain or a patient that you may be treating with back pain for all my therapists listening out there, please share it with them. It really does help us out. Keep the questions coming on our social media. We love hearing from you guys and we try and create all that content that you're asking for in the next show. So for now, I'm going to leave you. Sit back, relax, listen to this episode, Deepak Ravindra with post-COVID syndrome lowdown. Enjoy, guys. Thank you, Rob and Dave, uh, for having me on your show once again. I can't believe it's almost been 12 months since I was last there talking about fibromyalgia. So it's really been good uh, for you to invite me back on here again. I really loved your show and I've been listening to a lot of episodes and you've got a fascinating set of speakers. So thank you for again making me part of your speaker lineup for 2021. Okay then, Deepak, so give us the official line. What is COVID-19? Well, from our understanding right now, and this has been out in the general public for enough time, so I think everybody probably understands now, it is a acute viral, what we thought, a respiratory infection initially, but it is an acute infection caused by a member of the coronavirus uh, family, COVID-19, and The disease is essentially the process of the person who is infected with that particular virus demonstrating some symptoms of that. There's also this concept of COVID-19 infection where you can have the respiratory, uh, the virus actually settling in your respiratory tract, multiplying. And so you could be infectious, i.e. spreading the virus without necessarily showing the symptoms of the disease. You could be infected without having any of these symptoms as well. And that's the problem with COVID-19 is this particular infective process and viral infection seems to be having different ways of presenting. You could have people without any symptoms. You could have people with very mild respiratory symptoms. And you could have people with a variety of symptoms coming from different organ systems. And as everybody knows, this all started uh, in Wuhan probably last year sometime around January, February 2020 or maybe even earlier. 
And here we are 12, 14 months later with uh, many countries in the world still struggling and reeling from the economic and health impacts of this condition and its infectiousness. So now we're, we're further down the line of this, this global spread of this coronavirus. Um, we're starting to find this, this long COVID as a, um, as a resulting um, uh, symptom or resulting issue after having been infected with coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, can you give us a definition of what long COVID is? So this is something, first of all, I must say at the outset for your listeners there that long COVID has been the term that's been adopted by the people who've been struggling with a variety of symptoms after having had an acute COVID infection episode. And the official term that the NHS and the organizations in the UK have chosen to go for is called post-COVID syndrome. Essentially, they mean the same, um, but long COVID is, I think in my view, it is a much more preferable term. Now, the way we have defined long COVID is a set of symptoms or signs coming from multiple organ systems that far outlast the two or three week period that we normally give for a respiratory infection. So acute COVID has been defined as something that has got a average length of 10 days and we expect that 90% will recover maximum within three weeks. Once you go beyond four weeks then that is what they have called as possible or ongoing symptomatic COVID-19 and beyond 12 weeks it's what is being traditionally accepted right now as long COVID. Um, In fact the NICE guidance that came out in December 2020, uh, on the 18th of December to be precise, they actually said that long COVID can include anything from 4 to 12 weeks, which they call as ongoing symptomatic COVID. And post 12 weeks, they called as post-COVID-19. They said that long COVID could involve anybody having these symptoms from the period of four weeks after the acute infection. So... So this is anyone after four weeks, we, we can count that as as long? According to the NICE guidance. Initially, when the first guidance came out from the end of NHS, you know, when Matt Hancock and Simon Stevens from the main NHS organizations and the department, they felt that we should make some strategy for supporting the patients. They leaned towards 12 weeks. So the initial NHS guidance that came out at the end of October said that anything beyond 12 weeks is long COVID. But the NICE guidance, that was the most latest one, technically called long COVID as anything after four weeks. And what are the common symptoms of this of, of long COVID? What, what are people looking out for? Well, I think uh, this is what has been difficult with the condition. The, the biggest uh, set of symptoms has been fatigue, of course. But what we are realizing is that there are actually three or four cohorts of what would be long COVID. So technically, there were the understanding is you have this set of issues that can affect the respiratory, the cardiovascular, which is the heart and the pulse and the circulation, the CNS, which is the brain and nervous system, and then the gastrointestinal. So these were like the four big organ systems that are most commonly affected there. 
there was a report that came out in October, which actually talked that long COVID, we can't say that it is just one condition. They said it must actually be thought of as patients or people who are coming from possibly four different groups. So you have one group of people who have been very unwell with COVID, who have been so sick that they have required hospitalization, who have been probably in ICU or needed a ventilator or been on organ uh, support. Now, those people will be what we call the post-ICU group. Then you had the second group of people who might have had a relatively less severe infection, but they may have had one organ affected. So they may have some lung uh, fibrosis. They may have had some clots in their lungs. They may have had uh, a heart dysfunction and, you know, difficulties in their inflammation around the heart wall. So that could be a problem. So that was the organ complications group there. Then you had a slightly bigger group of people who have the typical post-viral fatigue. That is a very common picture that we are seeing in all three groups. But this was a group of people who were had a probably a mild course of the acute infection, but it just kept going on three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. And fatigue was the biggest problem, but they didn't have any of the other uh, symptoms affecting other organ systems. So post-viral fatigue was the third group. And the last group was the group which I think, in my opinion, is probably the largest group of people. These are the people who have essentially been having either mild infection and have been in the community, might have come to the respiratory response hubs in their local areas or might have even gone to emergency department and then gone back home. But those are the patients. I think those are the biggest in number and they have a very fluctuating set of symptoms you know breathlessness and fatigue is often a common presentation but they end up having pain from various muscles and joints they have shortness of breath which is good on some days not on other days they have headache they have brain fog the the ability to not think clear or not remember right or not get your sequence of events right there slipping with their sentences or what they say if they have uh, pre-existing anxiety or depression, it gets a lot worse or actually they develop a new onset anxiety, that kind of uh, worry that they can't really put a finger on on what it means. And then they may have palpitations or sudden ups and downs in their heart rate or blood pressure or saturation and diarrhea or constipation. So these are all the fluctuating symptoms, which I think in my experience of having now seen patients for the last four or five months, that has been a common theme that is coming through, that that's the biggest group. So Deepak, I mean, all of these people, you know, these huge groups of people, and obviously we know that people can suffer from COVID-19, but be asymptomatic. Is there a group of people that have been asymptomatically infected with COVID-19 that are then having symptoms at a later date, you know, whether these are the fatigue type symptoms or respiratory symptoms, you know, without knowing that they had COVID-19 or without knowing that they were hugely symptomatic? I've seen this reports, Rob, and um, on social media, and I've seen some anecdotal reports of some patients and some staff members in my hospital coming and telling me we had a very mild infection, you know, it it was just a mild cold, uh, but then I feel so fatigued and, you know, I just don't think I feel right anymore and my appetite is not there and loss of smell is there. So these are all uh, 
there is a small group, but in the actual clinic, that the long COVID clinic, which we've been doing for the last two months, I've not met any patients as yet who have been completely asymptomatic. So they've had some mild symptoms. They've either lost their smell for a few days or their taste for a few weeks. Uh, they've had uh, hardly any respiratory symptoms, but have had more tummy symptoms, no fever. Um, and, and that group has been there. I mean, even Myself, when I had a really bad attack of COVID at the end of March, uh, and I was one of the first healthcare professionals in my hospital to have the test and be tested positive, I probably had a mild uh, infection in the first week of March. I don't know what it was, but it was just two days for me. I didn't have anything. And then I had a really significant episode at the end of March. And at that time, I had respiratory symptoms only for 48 hours. You know, I had a raspy uh, dry cough and I felt like there was a lump in the throat but that just lasted 48 hours for me after that for the next 12 days of my suffering I did not have any respiratory symptoms at all I was breathless but that was because of this kind of crushing tightness that I felt around my chest it was like the way I would describe it is if as if someone asked me to wear a very tight corset that started from my neck down to my chest and it had lots of thousands of sharp needles on the inside and somebody just told me just tightened up a little more every day so that was what I had but I wasn't bringing up any phlegm or sputum or anything at all so it has been fascinating for me to actually see the variety of symptoms that patients have reported when they have come to the clinic. Well, because there's such a variety of symptoms, because there's such a variety of systems that are affected, Deepak, um, surely there can't be one test, you know, one diagnostic test or kit. Um, how do we diagnose long COVID? I think... This has been a challenge. You know, I've been listening uh, to many of your listeners who are on social media. They may have come across this uh, YouTube channel by a gentleman. I forget his name, but DMC, I think he does the Long Code podcast. He's done a fantastic job, really, of uh, bringing some of the other authors and people in this sphere nationally and internationally to talk about what can you do to test this and what can you do to evaluate this? And and that is a constant problem that COVID, especially long COVID with its presentation of symptoms, does not give us a straight set of biomarkers to make a clear diagnosis. To a certain extent, what we are doing in the long COVID clinics across up and down the country is making sure that we are not missing the obvious. So a lot of the blood tests that we are doing in any of the services are to ensure that we're not missing something that is treatable or identifiable or is at pointing towards a organ problem. And a lot of patients, when they come clear of that, but they still don't have an answer, we are struggling to actually find a test that will be clearly certainly within what is done in the NHS and what's available to your traditional GP. We don't have a clear biomarker. Um, at this stage, I might want to probably tell your listeners as well that consistently when you look at other epidemics now you may say well coronavirus is is different and and it is certainly behaving very differently but if we look at the SARS epidemic or we look at the MERS epidemic from what affected you know Hong Kong and Canada in 2019 uh, 2000 sorry in 2009 and 2008 what is coming out 
even in those studies that have been done is in the short term, and I would say short term would be somewhere between up to three to six months, respiratory symptoms, cardiac symptoms, neurological symptoms, ENT issues like loss of taste or smell can be noted or have been picked up. But in the medium and long term, once you go beyond that period there, then fatigue, pain, and psychological issues seem to be the dominant theme from the studies that have come out from that period. And this is all first world developed nations like Canada, Hong Kong, Singapore. So that's what the data we have to look out for and prepare for is this ongoing um, struggle that we will have with looking after patients who also are struggling with these conditions and symptoms. Absolutely. Um so, so why are we getting these symptoms, Deepak? Because there's, there's quite a specific sort of grouping of, of classical symptoms then. Um, why is this? What, what are they sort of created by? Um, I'll start with what I think is uh, my main sort of opinion on this. And this is something that uh, I had the opportunity to work with Professor Trisha Greenolg and Matthew Knight and Emma Lads in putting a paper together back in September. And... Our main understanding right now is that there is a hyperactivity of your immune system. There is a, you know, our immune system is induced by the response to the spike protein in the coronavirus, in the envelope of the coronavirus uh, particular structure. And that immune system activation in some people seems to be exuberant, seems to be something that the body is not able to control. And if you think about it from the perspective of this condition, I think it's a, it's a, to me, it was a little bit of a mind changer because that kind of makes the unpredictability, but at the same time, I feel it gives a little bit of opportunity. Um, and, and I think about it as if you have your immune system that is set at a certain point because of what you do in your environment, the kind of food you eat, the kind of life you have, the kind of stress factors or isolation or social issues that you have there. So if your immune system is ready at one particular set point, then along comes this virus, this spike protein and this coronavirus that it has never seen before the immune system starts to overreact. It has to protect you. So it would, ramp up the entire defenses it would put out all sorts of chemicals and mediators to protect you and in most times it understands when it should end you know there is a balance an equilibrium that your immune system will achieve wherein it will effect a complete neutralization of the virus and in most people that's what happens in two weeks or three weeks your immune system reaches a set point where it's achieved its goal of eliminating the intruder and you get back to becoming normal but in a group of people that immune system stays active stays overactive and the mechanisms to actually bring it back to equilibrium fail and that overactivity of the immune system is what we have now recognized as the cytokine storm. When that happens around the 10th to 14th day, it can be so exuberant that it starts to cause collateral damage. It starts to affect the heart, the lungs, the brain, the kidney. And it's not the virus 
infection per se. It's not the viral particles that cause necessarily the damage. It is actually the exuberant immune system and the pouring out of the chemicals by the immune system that end up causing a lot of the organ damage and a person to get admitted to ICU. So that is, I think, the predominant theory of why that immune system activates in the beginning, causing a problem. But then it also at some point ends up staying a bit active and keeps putting out uh, the inflammatory mediators. And that is what is considered possibly as a mechanism for long COVID, the ongoing release of immune related mediators. There may be other factors, you know, like there has been a thought process that the loss of taste or smell comes because the viral particles are getting lodged in some parts of the nervous system and those viral particles every time the virus kind of creeps up and shows up your immune system in the brain or probably in other parts of the body are mounting another similar response so prolonged viremia due to a weak response is considered to be one reason there is a group of people they think that maybe there's some relapse occurring maybe there's actually a reinfection that happens because the virus makes an entry there's a change maybe in the in the way it presents to the immune system that confuses the immune system and it mounts another response again or it may be something has uh, more plausible like deconditioning you know you have a very bad episode of severe covid acutely and your muscles are deconditioned but then it just never gets back up again so these are the four reasons right now we think long covid is happening the most plausible i feel is an overactive uh, immune system well i suppose that brings us to the burning question deepak which everyone might be thinking listening to this is how do we know who's going to be in that cohort, that group of people with this over-excited, exuberant, consistent immune response who slip into that, that cytokine storm? Um, who are they? Who are the ones that are going to fall in that group comparative to, to someone who might get COVID and then recover and, and have no onward symptoms? Uh, the burning question, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> I, uh, if I had an answer for that, we would you would be struggling to get an interview out. <laughs> uh, I, I think the honest answer is it's very difficult to know. There's been, when when the first set of studies came out and they said, oh, the BAME population is at risk and they identified a, a variety of uh, structural inequalities and pre-existing health inequalities that were putting them at risk. Then there was a thought process that maybe the population was doing a lot of the work in sectors where there was high exposure to these uh, you know the virus there so that's why they were getting a bigger viral load and so maybe that was putting them at risk there i think when you look at the population across the world that seems to be getting it and uh, struggling with it my leaning and i think uh, this is informed by my reading of the literature across the board is health inequalities do seem to play a role. I think if there is a pre-existing ongoing stressor for the immune system, whether they are struggling with diabetes or other kinds of metabolic conditions, increased weight, or uh, if you have already been on autoimmune 
diseases or having uh, autoimmune drugs that do dampen your immune system these are all going to be potential issues those are the biological let's say inequalities then if you look at social and structural inequalities people who are coming from potentially a deprived area or a deprived population people who have less access to healthy foods or less access to uh, good support systems in the community or for themselves they are all going to be potentially those people in whom the immune system is already sensitized is already is heightened and is there to protect them but then when a organism like coronavirus comes along it doesn't know when to stop and that would be my understanding right now of a set of population that could be at a higher risk of contracting or having a sustained response to this and thus having long covid i mean it has been one of my reasons why i've been trying to work with some community partners locally as well to uh work with vaccinations in in the bain populations is is that at least we know from the studies of the vaccines whichever vaccine studies have been done is that if we can get the uptake of the population to you know use and have the vaccine and overcome these myths that otherwise are existing we can at least reduce the severity of infection and and my hope is that if you don't have an immune system that's reacting exuberantly then maybe your chance of getting long covid is a lot less so we're stressing a less stressed system uh, absolutely I, I, and i think it's the same with pain as well you know part of the reason why i'd written this book on uh, the pain free mindset as well is that overlap between the nervous system and the immune system so one of the symptoms a lot of patients in long covid might be having is this aches and pains that they feel in muscles and joints now that pain that they feel may not necessarily be because their arthritis has got worse or their you know or their ligaments are or tendons are irritated or inflamed that is less likely to be a problem um it's more likely to be that there is such a deep overlap and interlink between the immune system and the nervous system that it would be foolish to think that if the immune system is not playing up that the nervous system would just stay silent it's going to get in on the act and it's going to be responsible for a lot of the the pins and needles the tingling the odd sensations that people might feel the pain that they feel in aches and in the joints and in bones with that how many of us are getting long covid comparative to those that are uh, getting an acute covid infection and then recovering what's the prevalence uh, within society uh, currently so there's a there's a lot of excellent data that has come out from public health england and i think uh, if your listeners have got a little bit of time out there then looking into some of this data will help them understand what the projected models are but broadly what we are saying right now is that 10% of the population uh, is likely to be at risk of getting long covid now with the assumption that as of the last two weeks ago when i looked at the data the uk had crossed 4 million positive cases of covid so you do the math we'll be looking that is the upper limit of we're doing that there is potentially up to half a million covid long covid cases is the theoretical risk from there now tim specter and his team in kings college they have this wonderful the covid zoe symptom study app and i think has of that app there they had a set of 
variations. They identified that people uh, who are slightly older or those who have got a loss of taste or you know smell in the early parts of the illness have pain or other breathlessness, then they seem to be at a higher risk of getting long COVID. So they estimated somewhere between one in ten to one twenty, according to the study app, would be at risk of getting long COVID. Um, and I would say that that is the numbers we are going by. When I was part of writing that paper back in September, we estimated 60,000 people in the UK potentially have long COVID. So this is a moving target. And all these numbers are based before we had our massive second wave or third wave, depending on how you call it, at the end of December and January and even February. So the last two months that we've gone through have been quite difficult for major parts of the country. So I would say that our numbers are going to be again much higher now than what we estimated. You know, when we started the long COVID service in Berkshire or when the NHS gave us the support to get 43 or 50 long COVID clinics to be set up in the UK as of November 30th, we were told that the estimation from Public Health England was that in Berkshire, we would possibly have 1,400 people with long COVID in our area. That was the projection they had from the population prevalence study. So you can, there's a data there to actually show how much each county is expected to have or possibly have. Well, that brings us quite neatly into treatments, uh, Deepak. Um, what are we doing at the moment to treat these sufferers of long COVID? Um, good question. I would probably say that right now when the long COVID clinics were set up and the NICE and NHS have given guidance, so they've been very clear in saying that firstly, we want to assess these patients because the biggest number of people are going to be people who have been in the community, who have been having a mild set of infections initially, may not have gone to the hospital, but then are left with a variety of symptoms that they've been struggling with. So the government's main intention was that when these clinics are set up is to actually make sure that we are not missing any treatable or life-threatening issues there. So they have suggested that all GPs at the time of referring to a clinic should at least do a chest X-ray if patients are having breathlessness as a big problem. Um, and then they suggested some blood tests to be done. They wanted people to have a set of blood tests to look at their kidney function, to look at their liver function, to look at the inflammatory markers called CRP, and then to look at how the thyroid is functioning and maybe a full blood count. What you are, are you anemic or are you having any other signs of inflammation? And there was also a test they suggested which would look at whether the heart muscle has been, you know, affected or not. So if that test came back as low positive, that it meant that patients don't have to worry about getting an echo or any kind of fancy investigation on their heart. Now, I know that that has been some contest, you know, contention around that because there has been some research to suggest that people could still have some changes on their heart or their lungs when they do an MRI or something that it could show up. But in broader schemes there, as part of research, I think that study is still going on in Oxford and London where they're doing these MRIs on the heart and the lungs. But we don't know whether that should be routinely required or not. I don't think the evidence is there to simply put people through those kind of tests. And my personal thought on that would be like, 
we know that in conditions like back pain or neck pain just having a disc bulge or having a, a disc dehydration does not mean pains coming from there and it's the same there is that it's after all about function and quality of life because you've had a little bit of scarring that has been shown on your heart muscle or on your lung muscle does it mean that you are restricted or you're breathless only because of that i don't think that answer is clear it's very possible for people to become normal yet their fibrosis may still be there or their heart changes may be there on the other hand there's no fibrosis there's no uh, myocarditis or anything like that yet people still are breathless and having palpitation so the connection between symptom severity and structure isn't really that clearly defined so we want to do those kind of assessments in the clinic there and in terms of treatment right now there is no clear drug that we can give what we are trying to make sure and help all our patients is to ensure that symptomatically they manage so if fatigue is a big problem uh, we've got some digital programs that the nhs has uh, re- supported with called your covid recovery um if uh, a pacing is an issue there then we've got fatigue and pain related physiotherapists and respiratory physiotherapists and occupational therapists who help with patients to create some pacing and those kind of management plans to teach them those strategies to slowly get back to there there's this thought about post exertional malaise which is quite similar to how chronic fatigue patients or me patients might have so that might need a little bit of a careful planning because we don't want to simply say things like graded exercise which are not recognized anymore so we need to work with them on a more individualized way so that's something we can work with breathlessness we need to test and make sure it's not lung related but then we can then teach them some retraining exercises because there's this interesting construct that if you're breathless it may not just be because your lung is not strong enough but it may be that because your the way your nervous system is controlling your breathing muscles that may have got uncoordinated you know the 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 streamlined way in which we breathe normally and we are not aware of our breathing gets lost because either the virus or the nervous system gets oversensitized and so actually breathing retraining can be done in many ways it can be done via dedicated pulmonary rehab program it can be done uh, has the breathe program which has been developed by the english national opera with regard with the collaboration with imperial college so they have this excellent free online 6 week program that everybody can access to where they use singing as a way of retraining the breathing so they're all very nice and simple things to do for these symptoms there um with drugs i think there's a lot of research going on or starting off looking at variety of things you know they're looking at something called colchicine which used to be used for gout but they're thinking of using it there uh, they're talking about histamine blockers because there's a thought process that histamine which is a kind of immune sort of mast cells which are a kind of immune cells end up releasing a lot of histamine and sometimes that overactive mast cell uh, syndrome can result in a lot of histamine in your body and that can cause some of the symptoms that you're having so they say that if you use a histamine blocker drugs like ranitidine or famotidine you know those things that we use for acidity control 
could probably be used for this the evidence isn't really good enough for us to give it as mainstream nhs therapy there i'd be really interested to find out because they all seem like attractive options to look at but i think we still need more research um the fact to reverse engineer that because the because the treatment then is is quite wide um is there any evidence to show that there's um a way to prevent yourself falling into that long covid so rather than worry about treatment is there anything that you could do not wanting to get covid but if there was um if you did undergo an acute um uh, infection of c19 is there anything you could be doing beforehand or generally lifestyle wise wise to prevent you slipping into that long covid category um absolutely i think that is uh, a huge topic in itself there probably if i split it as two separate things so first of all not catching covid hands face space yep absolutely i think those uh, mecan those precautions are mandatory um once you have caught an episode of covid there and you probably are testing positive there my suggestions would be again the simple things of good hydration there is a probably a fair uh, evidence for going for vitamin d and having a high dose of those vitamin d uh, supplementations there there's also suggestions that using zinc and selenium and other antioxidant rich diets could be useful in the acute phase if you uh, can manage to go through that part in the first 5 10 days so you you try to enhance the immune system and provide enough support to the antioxidant and scavenging facility of your immune system sort of support it at that time so reduce your processed foods reduce that kind of uh, high sugar or quick sugar rich foods at that time when you're having an acute infection in the uh, and probably breathing techniques slow measured breathing which it almost indicates to your immune system that things are all right and that can be a de-stressing mechanism so breathing techniques if possible uh, to try all at that acute phase there in the longer term or as a even more prophylactic or preventative strategy covid and the long term outlook has really made us aware uh, i mean i've not seen such a huge discussion on social forums in medical circles among our healthcare workers about well-being about what it means to staff well-being employee well-being employer well-being and there's so much more interest in looking and seeing how we can uh, calm our nervous systems reinforce our immune systems and really reevaluate our lifestyle so in that sense um it's a big important step that we need to focus on and i think that can work for any infection but particularly for covid is to really do a you know marie kondo of your lifestyle get a complete evaluation of what is the kind of drugs you're taking which can promote inflammation my simple suggestions obviously those kind of decision on drug taking might have to be done in discussion with your you know gp or your healthcare provider my suggestions would be to look at the ones that are in patients control or in the public's control really what kind of food you eat so really evaluate the kind of uh, diet you have look at the construct of an anti-inflammatory diet uh look at the construct of adding in some prebiotics or probiotics into your diet antioxidant rich foods so things that have more vitamin e vitamin a vitamin c zinc selenium 
those are all very important options there polyphenols that has become a very good way to look at reducing inflammation or combating possible inflammatory strategies looking at sleep and physical activity and finally embracing some form of mind body therapy mindfulness or meditation tai chi pilates uh, yoga uh, and the reason i say all this now we used to think of these as kind of eastern therapies or a little bit woo woo but there are actually studies now that have shown that when you're able to be mindful when you're able to do some mindful practice like yoga or walking or running or any kind of physical activity you are building new nerve circuits in your brain and in your spinal cord you are almost teaching the immune system in the brain and in the rest of your body to calm down because of the way the chemicals are used up and that in effect reduces the overall stress that you have the stress often acts on certain immune cells within the brain making them more uh, active and spew out bad chemicals and in this it actually helps bring it down um i i put all this because the same connection between the pain and the immune system i bring it in my book as well wherein i focus on this particular type of immune cell in the brain called the microglia and when you do these kind of mindful activities good food good sleep good physical movement and some relaxation techniques then you are actually calming the microglia down you're almost changing them from their mr hyde to a dr jekyll like situation and and that is really useful when you calm the immune system at that level then that really is an important way forward probably one other thing i would recommend as well i think i heard this from a long covid patient suffer a couple of weeks ago and she told me uh, this in the clinic that an occupational therapist i've been working with her and she told her that with long covid especially a lot of long covid patients that i've been seeing often they might have been very fit and healthy they might have been people who are running marathons or you know been really at the top of their game in their work and in their social or personal life and then they are struck down by long covid and struggling with fatigue and memory issues and pain and what that therapist had apparently told them is if you're already someone who is a high achiever that means your sympathetic your drive system has already been at a high level where you've been functioning and then when you have long covid you've got a situation wherein you are already a preset high sympathetic functioner your your adrenaline is always a little higher than the normal population and then you have your immune system which is also become active so you got both systems at a high level so what you need to do then is to find a way to either bring down the sympathetic system or you need to find a way to actually upregulate or enhance your parasympathetic system your other part of the autonomic system and bring that balance back in and the activities like good sleep good food mindfulness relaxation other mind body therapies they all upregulate and enhance the parasympathetic system so you can bring equilibrium back and bring it to a state of harmony by putting these systems in place and the same applies even before you get covid in fact you've been on our on our show before obviously and we spoke you know a great detail about fibromyalgia um and a lot of the stuff which you've kind of just recommended you know also sings true with treatment for fibromyalgia and me and and that type of you know those chronic pain conditions is there a crossover with the groups of people or a crossover with the conditions in terms of long covid and and fibromyalgia 
I think there is a definite similarity there, Rob uh, and, and Dave. Really, um, I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I got interested as well. You know, yes, I, I caught COVID and and I was interested because a lot of my colleagues were all going through different stages of recovering, and that's what made me interested in long COVID as a construct even before it happened. But when I set up the service itself, that was one of the thoughts that a lot of the patients were having symptoms that seemed to be what I was seeing in my fibromyalgia patients as well. And it got me thinking that, well, if I could help and be part of the solution locally to set up a service, look after these people and give them this support and this access to therapies and treatments much earlier, could it actually prevent the trajectory from them developing fibromyalgia or getting a diagnosis like that 18 months down the line because a lot of patients with chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia often struggle to get a diagnosis two or three years after the symptoms have started and I thought well with this service could we help recognize it early the second thing I think I'm excited with with long COVID as such I feel is that there's so much wonderful research that's happening across the world into long COVID now there's so much awareness in the public from a variety of healthcare professionals and celebrities who have been struggling with this condition that it is likely to yield some form of biomarker or test or chemical or molecule or structure in the brain or in the spinal cord or somewhere which will probably be a way of testing and recognizing this condition earlier now it may be of benefit in long covid but i think it has a potential to also help a lot of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue patients because it might provide a target because we don't have that right now for those conditions so i'm hopeful that it will help in in effect yes the similarities there which is why i think a lot of the treatments and and at the end of the day that's what brings it back the mind and the body are one your immune system and your nervous system are still one they are belonging to the same person so your experiences your context and how you go through something will be the same so you will have certain overlaps in these conditions and the symptoms and what they present with so i'd like to think that there is an overlap between long covid and fibromyalgia whether there will be finally very clear conditions because they will have separate markers for them i think time will tell right now i see similarities which is why a lot of the treatments overlap stepak are we able to tell at this stage what the prognosis for a long covid sufferer might be because obviously we're still relatively early on in the um in, in the science here um do, do we have any uh, evidence to support this no i'm not aware of any scientific peer reviewed researched or published literature that actually is able to give an end point so that is mm. probably not uh, right now there what i can say is from the experience of looking after patients now in the service and you know when we started this service in bakshar in in december it sort of 1st of december onwards we were getting patients obviously who had been struggling with symptoms from march or april of last year you know when when they were starting to get a possibility of it might be a fever cough or some throat problem you had and you're left with long symptoms afterwards and a lot of those patients from march and april had come to a point wherein you know they had no support at all they had to kind of fend on their own and recover on their own 
and they had reached a point wherein they were starting to go back to work somewhere between 7 to 9 months so right now that's the best i can give is that if you are struggling with long covid i have seen a number of patients able to return back to work or be or having very little of those symptoms apart from some fatigue related issues at the end of 6 to 8 months 9 months probably so that is probably the marker i would put on the sand right now those people in whom it seems to last longer i think they are the ones who either have had a more difficult time in hospital or are having multiple symptoms from multiple conditions and they are the ones who are taking much longer you know that's that's that sh- so that should give some people some hope as well then that you know there is you know in your experience though anecdotally that you know you've seen endpoints in in these patients which is which is good um you know it's not a it's it's a good thing for the patients to hear i guess I, oh definitely and i think there's a lot of hope in there because let's face it there we had thought that there would be for example putting it 1300 people with long covid in the bakshar area is what we estimated but we don't know how many are actually going to seek healthcare and and often within healthcare we assume that everybody who suffers actually coming into hospital to seek help actually a lot of them are, are not they are actually getting well and probably becoming better and those are the numbers we don't see at all you know i would not see the number of people who are got better in 4 to 5 to 6 months and have gone back to work and they would be there on social media and i think there's some good trials that are starting uh, both in the us and in the uk looking at the lived experience the narrative experience of people who have had it but who 3 or 4 or 6 months later have gone back you know i think the most uh, a uh, high profile of that was uh, this person called Paul Garner he was a professor in Liverpool and his journey through the initial phase of long covid was chronicled in the british medical journal and about just i think last month he put an article out saying that he had started to take control of his life and now he was not having any symptoms he had done some therapies he tried a variety of techniques and now he was symptom free and back to his work and feeling fine was able to go on a boot camp and his journey therefore is around 6 to 7 months when he found what helped him but so that definitely is possible i think it's a very small percentage of patients who will be struggling with symptoms a few months or a couple of years down the line and that's why i think we've got the setup right now to help those people at least signpost them in the right direction give them all the resources they need online and offline and yes the final decision will be with how the patient takes that and and runs with it really So speaking of the of the people who who are suffering you know there there is a long covid support group on facebook which i think has 35,000 or so people in which is a huge number of people and i put a post in there just saying i was talking to you about it and would anyone have any questions um you know you know for you kind of about the specifics and we have we kind of had a couple of interesting ones um you know if you don't mind i was going to ask you a couple of those the first one being um you know do we know what causes the desaturation on exertion uh i'll try my best i think this is something that still research is ongoing and i've seen a few patients in the clinic as well 
there are possibly two reasons for it from what I've looked in. And I think if your listeners come up with some more options or are aware of some newer articles, I would love to see it in the comment section there. So this is still evolving field there. And I, at, at the outset, I will declare I'm not a respiratory physician. So there probably would be many reasons. Coming from my anesthetist background, where I do see a fair few desaturations uh, in theater for a variety of reasons, um, so I would probably have to say that if your amount of oxygen that's not going in, let's, I think let's start it at two levels. One is the kind of equipment you have. First of all, I'd be very clear that the kind of pulse oximeters you have or your listeners are having at home. And when they use that there, that needs to stay on your finger for at least one minute for equilibration to occur. Most of the pulse oximeters that are available right now as a result of the pandemic are not sensitive enough like the pulse oximeters that we have in ICU or in operating theaters or even in hospital. So that's the first outset I'd have to say is just because you start walking and you suddenly see your pulse oximeter dropping, please make sure that actually you are having it on for a minute and you see whether that desaturation is really a true value or is just an artificial because the equipment is not being equilibrated or you know calibrated. The second thing is make sure the contact is adequate there because again, if you are trying to do some exertion or you've tried to do a small walk and you've shade, you know, shook your hands, and that has taken off the contact, that will then feel there. So these are the mechanical factors that are responsible for giving a false reading. Now, if that reading was really true, i.e. there is desaturation that's occurring there, then one of the reasons people thought initially was that, oh, the lung must be affected. There are not enough air sacs in the lung for the transfer of oxygen to occur so that it keeps in pace with how much the body requires oxygen. So a lot of oxygen is being used up and hence the desaturation occurring. We That could be a possibility that there is not enough lung tissue there that has been, it has been affected because of the acute COVID infection you had. But we are realizing now and I, uh, spoke to my respiratory physiotherapy colleagues a few weeks ago when we were setting this clinic up. They'd actually looked at the uh, data across the board from people who had been in ICU in the hospital and who had actually gone and uh, done the respiratory lung function test afterwards. And they actually found that their recovery was quite good. They had come out of the function. They had their lung function, which was very good. And these were people who had severe pneumonia, who were on a lung support machine, and they had been in ICU for about 10 to 20 days or in hospital on a breathing support. When they did their studies two months later, their lungs had recovered completely, but they were still noticing that their desaturation was happening on certain activities. So, the structure of the lung doesn't seem to correlate with why your desaturation. By desaturation, it means that your oxygen, where it would be normally 96 or 98 on the oximeter, starts to go rapidly down. And we get worried or we get concerned when it goes below 92, really. And that's in, if someone has been healthy before. So I would say that the most dominant reason for exertional desaturation is going to be one, a mechanical issue, and if it is going to be a real value, then it could be an influence of the lung changes. 
What my colleagues think when respiratory colleagues have said is that it may also be a function of the mechanics. You know, when I made that mention in the past before about the nervous system not getting the control of the muscles, the breathing muscles, that might be a fact that it doesn't get the sequence of how much air you breathe in. So you get a bit breathless, you don't take in enough air, but you breathe out and you have shallow breathing, so not enough oxygen is there in your lungs, even though your lungs are completely normal and they have recovered completely. But because you haven't got the mechanisms in the right way, they are not functioning in a synchronized manner, not enough oxygen is available. So as you start walking, that gap in oxygen, the deficit starts to show through and your then your oxygen saturation starts to go down. That is probably going to be a more likely mechanism, which is why doing some kind of breathing retraining, some pacing activities and gradually getting that back can be a big help in improving that exertional desaturation if that is something people are having. Of course, I think your uh, reader had mentioned clots in the lungs, but that would come under my definition of some structural issue in the lung. Fantastic. Thank you for that. For that very, very good answer. Um, the second question was, Obviously, everybody's got a variety of symptoms, and we've touched on the the wealth of symptoms that people have. But you know, one that comes up again and again is the fatigue, which I know we spoke about. Is there a clue as to why people are are still so fatigued? And I guess you know, I'd like to add to that. You know, outside of anything which we've spoken about in terms of treatment, is there anything which you give or have recommended specifically for your patients, specifically for the fatigue? Uh, no, no, I have not been able to come across any good, simple uh, treatments to suggest for fatigue, really. Uh, pacing uh, has been my go-to, and I think I came across this very good uh, article from Natasha Lipman and Claire Campbell. Uh, Claire Campbell is a physio with the Pain Physiotherapy Association, and they put together an excellent resource on how to pace uh, your activities and do a gradual recovery from there for fatigue management. I've got an excellent uh, fatigue physiotherapist who works with me in the unit as well. So I defer to her for that kind of understanding of how to use uh, various strategies to overcome the fatigue and, and get doing a certain number of activities in the day. So those have been my two main strategies that I have suggested to my patients uh, in the long COVID service regarding fatigue management. There is a lot of interest around nutrition and microbiome and prebiotics and probiotics. And I think for that, uh, although I've done a qualification in lifestyle medicine, I still feel that that is an untapped frontier. So I would probably consider asking your listeners to look at maybe the realm of either functional medicine or some form of nutritionist who uh, a nutritionist who has this interest in looking at histamine diets, low histamine diets, or uh, looking at fasting, mimicking diets, a particular form of intermittent fasting, the use of other supplements or uh, utilizing some form of, you know, there's this construct called NAD plus deficiency. So you don't have enough energy production happening because the mitochondria, which are your energy factories in your cells, they are not functioning efficiently. So ways in which you can boost your mitochondrial energy production could also be a way in overcoming fatigue and there might be a role of natural 
dietary changes that you could implement to put in there so that is where i've been signposting some people to to explore uh, such resources amazing deepak uh, <clears throat> thank you so much um we'll we'll wrap up there deepak where can we find out more about you now you've mentioned your book a few times uh, tell us more when is the book out well the book is out on march 4th uh, and it's being brought out by Vermilion, which uh, are an imprint of Ebury and Penguin. And uh, it's called The Pain-Free Mindset. I, my basic background is uh, of anesthesia and pain medicine. I've done some qualifications in musculoskeletal lifestyle. But it, to a great extent, a lot of what we spoke today about lifestyle-related issues do apply as well in pain management. I think for long we've been straightjacketed into thinking that every pain is a form of damage. And so either you have to, you know, investigate it, image it, medicalize it, give drugs or do injections or surgeries. And I've realized that the research indicates that only 30% of patients are benefited 30% of the time by what is available in conventional mainstream NHS practice of medications and interventions. Um, and I felt that we need to be aware that the remaining 70% of the population and remaining 70% of the time, we need to have some other strategies to help our pain patients. And if we can get that message out there that pain is not necessarily an indicator of damage, that pain is an evolutionary protection mechanism. It, it is there to protect us. It will be activated by the brain and the spinal cord when there is a threat of danger. And that danger could be physical danger. It could also be existential danger. But either of that can bring about the same response in the nervous and the immune system to behave in a different manner and so to calm the system down, we need not just medication interventions, but we need elements of the nervous system and stress management, elements of diet and microbiome, elements of sleep, elements of exercise and elements of uh, therapies of mind and body. And so that became my kind of acronym. So the M, the I, the N, the D, the S, E and T for, you know, medications, interventions, diet, nutrition sleep, exercise, and therapy. So that is what the pain-free mindset is all about. And, and that book is coming out in, on the, in the first week of March. Amazing. Where can we find the book, Deepak? Is that available Amazon? Absolutely. Amazon has right now got, I think, 25% uh, off uh, going on now. But uh, Penguin, your high street shops, W.H. Smith, Waterstones, Foils, um, Everything, all high street retailers should be carrying the book and should have it on their websites for pre-order already. Fantastic. Deepak, thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> if you want to find out a bit more about you as well, where do we head to? Um, right now, in the website's still under construction, but I'm available on social media, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I think on Twitter, I'm at Deepak Ravindra 5 and at Instagram, I'm Dr. Deepak Ravindra. Fantastic, Deepak, amazing. Uh, Rob, any more to add? No, that was uh, that was fascinating. As I said, you know, this is a podcast which is titled the Back Pain Podcast, and we've delved into other areas. And this is is such a new and you know a new up and coming area. I just found it fascinating, an area which I know you know very little about besides researching for this episode. So thank you ever so much, Deepak, for you know, taking the time to go deep into uh, into the world of long COVID. 
Yes. Thank, thank you, Rob and Dave, for having me. I think it's been a pleasure to discuss to you to go long into long COVID, really. Yeah, go long. Absolutely. It's a, it's a subject that deserves it. Uh, so everyone who's listening, thank you so much for joining. The Back Pain Podcast does long COVID. Mm-hmm.